Thank you, Father, for this time now as we take your Bible and hear from you. Father, we do want to be a, a church that is alive and well. We want to be a holy people. We want to pe- be a people sensitive to obedience, living as salt and light in a needy world. And so, Father, give us a special grace this morning as we learn and as we grow and as we think and as we are challenged about our behavior and what it means to live as a Christian in a godless world. Father, I pray specifically for our children today and the next generation that we would effectively pass on truth to them, that your church would accomplish what you've placed us here to do. We commit the few minutes that we have now, Lord, to study our Bibles together to you. Use them well within us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Janet and I attended uh, the Hedgesville High School Alumni Banquet last night. This is an annual event. The last couple years we've been in attendance. And one of the things that they always do at the Alumni Banquet is whatever year it is, they have a representative from those classes come up and speak. And it was very interesting. Um, so this year, any class that ended with one, for example, um, 1941, there was a speaker from that class. 1951, 61, 71, on so on. Okay? And so on the tens. And I thought I was so struck by a story that the speaker selected uh, to talk about the Hedgesville High School class of 1941. He said that uh, one of the things he remembered was that the boys, the senior high boys, would take their shovels in the wintertime on the bus. And when the bus driver couldn't get through the snow drifts, the boys and the driver would get off the bus, shovel the road, and the bus would proceed to school. Do you know that the times have changed? (laughs) You know, I don't know that everything old is better, (laughs) Certainly that's not the spirit of the age, but I was so struck with just that little anecdote how much things have changed in our world. If you've been with us, you know that we have been taking just a few weeks to deal with our culture in crisis, and then how is the church to respond? How are we to think? How are we to process the changing world in which we live? We know the Word of God doesn't change and that God has called us to live a pure and holy life. And we know that some of the things that God's Word teaches have become as outmoded as boys on a school bus shoveling snow. You know, school's supposed to be canceled. We've talked about the demonization of motherhood. and We've talked about the pornification of our Society at large. By the way, I promised you notes, and they will be available during the Sunday school hour. There were some typos, and I didn't run them off. I was wrapping them up on short notice, and I'm sorry about that. The normalization of homosexuality is our topic for today. And what a topic. And I think it deserves a few contextual remarks. First of all, I want you to know that this topic of homosexuality, along with pornography, along with the demise of the core values of motherhood in the home, making a mockery out of families and and caring for our children, these topics matter for what reason? They matter because they all have to do with the stability of our homes. And when you 
undermine the strength of the family and you undermine the continuity of the traditional biblical family, what do you do? You effectively cut the root of passing on truth to the next generation. Is it any wonder that Satan is out to destroy marriages and homes? Who are the victims? Our children. What happens? They don't live for Jesus when they grow up. And they live in a confused world. And so how important is it that daddy loves Jesus? And that daddy loves mommy. And mommy loves daddy. And mommy loves Jesus. And they both love their kids. And that doesn't have to be pie in the sky. That is God's plan. That is God's design. And it is livable. And so once again today, I want to tell you that I'm not addressing the world. The you know as well as I know that almost every time you turn on the TV, almost regularly in the news, especially this winter, and I'll not even take time to illustrate, there is a, a dramatic, let's, let's call it an avalanche of cultural shift to where in the world, I'm talking about those without Christ, those outside of God's church where the Bible is the core of their, their faith and the center of their understanding of how to live the way God designed us to live, that homosexuality has become an open thing. It is totally acceptable, and not only that, it has become, it has become very, very incorrect in our culture to ever reference it in a negative way. And so I want to tell you that uh, I'm not trying to reference homosexuality in a negative way. I do not stand before you afraid to address this subject because God's Word addresses it. And I address it along with other sins that we have been dealing with. But for the sake of clarity for the next generation, I see a world that is shifting so dramatically that... um, there will be almost no understanding of why homosexuality would be unacceptable. It will be like, what is wrong with you? There's nothing wrong with that. And so I don't address the world. We cannot fix the world apart from one heart at a time and and the gospel changing their lives. I address the church again today as a pastor concerned about my flock. And let me tell you that I... And I stand before you fully aware that this subject is something that is most relevant within the church. I recognize that I'm speaking to an audience that, that very well may include those of you who have siblings or children or grandchildren who have now entered into the homosexual lifestyle, not so much because they just up and chose to do it, but it has become evident that for some reason, maybe even since they were a little child, their heart has been turned towards an attraction of those with the same gender. I want to tell you that I do not believe that it is a genetic flaw or a genetic design, if to be less negative in that comment, I do believe that it is multifaceted, but it is most often related to the function of the home and in environmental forces that are on the child of many kinds. 
including sexual abuse, molestation, the growing feminist movement where we have a domineering female image, we have a passive, bumbling fool for fathers presented to us, and our little boys and our little girls are confused. Do not think for a minute that this is not a ploy of the evil one. This is very much timed appropriately by Satan, the prince of the power of the air, to do the most damage to a most susceptible culture. And that's part of the reason why it exists. But let me tell you that I recognize that you didn't, even if you're here and, and it's, you're not out of the closet and you have been fighting this and you struggle with yourself, I recognize that this is a difficult sin to process. And I recognize that your families are impacted and very difficult, and it's a complex issue. And so I want to address this from the point of view that the church must understand what God's Word says. And I stand before you with this whole concern of accommodation in the church. Remember our stick from week one, how the little vine came and the branch accommodated it. It was a slow process. It left an indefinable mark. We now have, creeping into the church, and perhaps it's even at a greater speed than a creep, like a vine growing, it is becoming more aggressive all the time. A movement that is now in the outer fringes of evangelicalism that is calling for a new mindset to accept homosexuality as acceptable within the Christian life. I will be using, for the sake of communication and our understanding, the term gay Christian or gay church, that kind of word. I understand that words change meaning, and I think whether you like words being taken hostage or not, reality is our culture now understands what the word gay means. And it means someone who is generally living in open homosexuality when they use the word gay. So I use the two words synonymously today. Homosexuality, which includes lesbianism, bisexuality, transvestism, and other perversions of God's plan. I use these terms to cover that whole world. And I'll not take time to define it down more. Our time is fleeting as it is. If you've been watching the news, you know that mainline denominations for about 15 years have been debating this issue. And as these mainline denominations have become uh, less committed to the authority of God's Word, they have opened themselves to the acceptance of, of any number of matters that historically and traditionally have not been accepted in Orthodox Christianity. And now it is becoming much more acceptable, even to the point that uh, a denomination that has been characterized by significant liberal theology, that is a departure from the, the fundamentals of our faith and, and a firm hold on the authority of God's Word. That would be the Presbyterian Church USA, but also a denomination that has had many good men and good churches within. They are now divided, and that's been in the news just within the last 10 days, where they are now uh, officially 
enabled to ordain open homosexual ministers and so on. I ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning. That's something else I wanted to say is that by nature this is a Bible study and I want you to be ready to turn in your Bibles. So will you turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4 right now for one more introductory thought. While you turn there, let me also mention another way. I'm, there are many illustrations of how a, a homosexual mindset is creeping into the church to the degree that there are even gay Christian churches, there are gay Christian denominations, there are major publishing companies that are now adjusting their materials to that end, and we see, just like we do with major companies like Starbucks, Home Depot, and then the negative fallout that like a Chick-fil-A has received, um, you might see these stories in the news, that Christian publishing companies are now succumbing to the temptation to make money in their publica- publication printout materials, that there is now an arena that is viable, so they produce gay Christian materials. A name that I'll use as one more illustration to illustrate that this is creeping or now walking or trotting into the evangelical community and is no longer just on the radical liberal fringes of American religion is a name that some of you know who is somewhat of a radical and I consider him a bona fide heretic but he is by many included in the evangelical world. His name is Brian McLaren. I'll not talk more about him other than in a leadership journal uh, interview. This is what he said, and this is representative of the mindset of the fringe of evangelical that of evangelicalism that is opening the door for a shift in our biblical understanding of what homosexuality is. He says this. They, he suggests that Scripture is unclear on the matter, and to gain clarity, we need to consider not only what Paul and Moses had to say, but also what today's psychologists, sociologists, and philosophers think. And that's how it happens. It is receiving the mind of man and elevating it to the degree that it can influence our understanding of Scripture. All right, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. This is exactly what I think is happening in evangelical world today. Let's begin with verse 2. The Apostle Paul, in his final words to Timothy, says, Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct and rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come, Timothy, when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, look at this line, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. I am not implying that the Apostle Paul necessarily had homosexuality in mind when he wrote that verse. I am suggesting, though, that, the, that what happens is that we always want to rationalize and justify our lifestyle, and we will alter our theology to fit our lifestyle. Did you hear what I said? We will alter our theology to fit our lifestyle, and we will seek and poke around until we find someone who will say what agrees with how I, here's the word, feel. 
rather than bringing my feelings under submission to the authority of the Word of God. And so this morning, I want to ask three questions. Think of this as somewhat of a class lecture today, rather than necessarily an expositional Bible message. We are going to study the Word of God together. Remember what our goal is. It is that we understand what God's Word says so that we do not accommodate false doctrine. And that may come with a cost. There may be a price to be paid for that mindset. So be it. God's people have paid a price for truth through the centuries. Three questions. Question number one. It's the obvious question. So, does the Bible speak with clarity or not? Question number one. Does the Bible speak with clarity? Question number two. Can our church know with authority? On this topic, can we really know as a church that we have a right position? And question number three, though, is very personal, and it is, okay then, but what about my reality? What do I do with my son or daughter, my spouse who has left me after 10 years of marriage and decided that they're lesbian or whatever? And we're hearing more and more of these stories. I'm only going to be able to give a sampling of the illustrations under these questions. So let's take our Bible and let's answer question number one. And let me give you an illustration of what I mean, because this is a huge issue in evangelical or Christian homosexuality. In the gay church, in the gay Christian world, there is a great movement for revising our Bibles. It's revisionism and it's nothing other than revisionism. You see, the church has been totally unified on this topic for a couple thousand years, ever since the Bible's been written. There's been no misunderstanding. There's been no second guessing about what God's Word says about this. And then all of a sudden, in the last 25 years, guys like Amel White, who's one of the leading theologians for them, he was, he was uh, on faculty at at uh, Fuller Seminary. He worked with Jerry Falwell in the earlier years. He is now head of an organization called Soul Force. They go around to Christian campus to Christian campus and they peacefully boycott these campuses and sit in their cafeterias. They come into the public places of this cafe- of these college campuses and they engage with Christian young people trying to get them to defend their position from the Word of God and they're trained in their revisionist theology and they try to bring confusion to Christian young people, most of who are unable to give an answer to what they really understand the Bible to speak of. For example, okay, an example under this pocket, this is question number one. Does the Bible speak with clarity? One of the first places they will go is the sin of Sodom. Okay? I ask you a question. Do you know what the word sodomy means? Where did that word come from? Why do we have a word that's in our dictionary and even has been on the books of our laws called sodomy? Because of the city of Sodom. And there has been no mistaking in historical Orthodox Christianity exactly what the sin of Sodom was and how and why God dealt with it. The Christian, I'm using this in quotes now when I say the Christian gay community, let me say in parentheses, 
I do believe that it is possible to be a Christian and commit homosexual acts. I believe that it is possible to be a Christian and to have all kinds of confusion about your gender. I do not believe, because the Word of God speaks pointedly to it, that you can be openly active in this sinful lifestyle, just like it speaks to a number of other specific sins, as an example, and says, you cannot just go on sinning and expect to enter the kingdom of God. This is not how believers act. So there is a level of incongruity when you say, Christian gay. All right? It's like saying, I'm going to start my Christian adulterers club. I'm going to start my Christian rapist club. This kind of talk is very offensive to homosexuals because they don't believe that they are choosing this behavior and they believe that it is a natural artworking of who they are. But God's word does not handle it that way. Okay? And so God's word says a Christian cannot go on living in this sin. So back to Sodom. This is an example of whether or not the Bible really speaks with clarity. And I'm going to have to speak um, to the point, and it is this. They have revised in their thinking the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and you remember that it centered around Lot. We had a message on this in the summer of 2008. And... Um, I told you once that I started Genesis in January of 2009. I was wrong. I started it in March of 2008. And, uh, but anyway, in the summer of 2008, we had a message about Sodom and Gomorrah. And do you remember that Lot had some visitors? They were messengers from God. They were angels in the form of humans. They had come to his house. And it says clearly, and we'll not take time to turn there, but uh, in Genesis chapter 19 is where you'll find this story, that they came to Lot's front porch and they just about broke down his doors trying to get to these men. And Lot himself says, you cannot do this wickedness here on my porch. And then he does an almost indescribably, infathomable thing for a father. He offers them female flesh. He offers them his daughters. And they say, no, we want the men. There are two things that the Christian homosexual will say about this passage. You do not understand your Bible. You have not understand it correctly. You have not understood it correctly because what was so serious, the reason the men were enraged is because they had, because Lot had brought guests into their community and he had not received permission to do that from the city fathers and they were um, upset about him doing that and it, and it was regarding, regarded as a culturally inappropriate thing and so they wanted to get those guys out of there. The second thing is that they wanted to gang rape. They did not, they were not homosexuals. They, they did want to do perversion. They wanted to gang rape that person. But that does not mean they were homosexuals. They were just sex, sex fiends and so on. And there's a number of revision thoughts. Part of what they'll do is they will go to Ezekiel chapter 16, where it says that God condemned Sodom and Gomorrah for not caring for the poor. And for not caring for weak people. And it doesn't mention sodomy. It doesn't mention homosexual behavior. Listen, you have to read your Bible if words mean anything. Did Lot understand exactly why they were on his porch? He did. And their, their behavior, whether it was a one-time act or not, and that's just, that's unbelievable, isn't it? How could the city-wide movement of men and boys want to get their hands on new flesh? Be just a momentary crazed drunken crowd 
who ignored beautiful girls and wanted just men? No. You know the city was characterized by the wickedness, yes, of adultery, all kinds of sin, including homosexuality. Turn to Jude, verse 7, and we'll go quickly again to just what the Bible says. What do you do with these words? How can you revise it? Jude, verse 7, take a look at it. Way in the back of your Bible, right before the book of Revelation, 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, Jude, and then Revelation, and look at verse 7. And he's using Sodom, he's using Sodom and Gomorrah as an illustration along with wicked angels, just like in verse 6 of Jude 6. Look what he says. Starting with Jude verse 6. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal life. The gay Christian will point at that and say, see, it doesn't say homosexuality. But the whole story was about homosexual sin. And so you have to revise history. You have to revise the understanding of the church fathers. You have to revise 2,000 years or more of an understanding of exactly what happened. And in the last 25 years, they've figured it out. That is revisionism. You can't do that to your Bible. That is seeking to adjust your theology to fit your lifestyle. There are several other illustrations that they would say the Bible isn't clear. Levitical law is another example, but we'll not have time to look at it. If you look in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, it clearly says that if a man lies down with a, a man like he would a woman, that it is an abomination and it is dis despicable. Leviticus chapter 18 and Leviticus chapter 20 are very R-rated chapters. They are just heinous in the listing of the kinds of sexual sin that they spell out. Bestiality. All kinds of things. And they will say, okay, if you're going to listen to those verses, then how come, let's see what you're wearing today. You've got cotton and wool on, in the, woven into the same fabric. You've got, you see, because sandwich in between 18 and 20 is Leviticus chapter 19 that says don't mix your seeds when you're planting apples. Don't, don't uh, mix, interweave different kinds of threads. There's numerous examples. And they say, okay, if you're not going to keep that, you don't pay attention to that. Why do you pay attention to the others? What they don't understand and what they, what they revise is what any Bible teacher would tell you, any Bible student can tell you, that there are different kinds of lists in Leviticus. And there are different reasons that God gave those specific rules to make His people a distinct people. But what you need to understand is, yes, God gave dietary rules to His people Israel. God gave ceremonial laws to His people but when you read those lists, you know what you don't see in those lists? You don't see King James, it's an abomination, NIV, it is despicable. You don't see that. You don't see the death penalty called for. You also, this is the key point, it's the same reason we're meeting here on Sunday and not Saturday the Sabbath, which is given in the Ten Commandments. Because of all the commands, it was not reiterated and taught and retaught in the New Testament. 
And so all of the moral laws were retaught and reinforced. God's moral law has not changed. His civil and dietary laws have changed because of the distinctness with which he was dealing with Israel in the midst of a pagan nation. Which speaks to another example, and this will be it for this point. Does the Bible speak with clarity? The answer is yes. But when you look at these passages, you have to spin them and you have to revise them. And they do it very convincingly and they try to show that words don't mean what words mean. Here's a big one. And if you've ever watched a YouTube video or if you've watched a news clip or if you've ever been in person at a gay parade, you will see this one is one of their favorites to put on a sign. What Jesus said about homosexuality. And below it will be a long empty line with no words on it. And the big argument is, listen, my friends. Jesus taught us to love one another, and Jesus never spoke to the matter of homosexuality. Isn't that interesting? Well, I don't recall Jesus speaking to a whole bunch of things. But so what you have is you have a select elevating the words of Jesus above the authority of Scripture. Jesus' words and Scripture are equal. They've revised the teaching of Paul and so forth. If Jesus didn't talk about it, Jesus just said, love one another. So does the Bible speak with clarity? Absolutely it does. And when Jesus was asked about another matter, divorce, what did he do? He went back to Genesis, and Genesis is clear that when the man was alone and God said it was not good, he made a helpmeet suitable for him, and it was a woman. That is God's design. Jesus did speak to the point, didn't he? Jesus did speak to the point. Does the Bible speak with clarity? Indeed it does. We have numerous examples. Second question is, can the church know with authority? Can the church know with authority what we're talking about here and that it is indeed sin? Will you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6? 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is an interesting passage that has to do in its context with believers taking other believers to court before pagan judges, before the secular judges. Specifically, that's what Paul is talking about. And he's saying, shame on you, church. You're different than the rest of the world. If you have a lawsuit to settle with somebody in your church who is a brother or sister in Christ, don't take them to secular court. Find godly people in the church and settle it there. Don't you know that you will even judge angels one day? And then you're going to go have a pagan judge you? That's out of line. That's out of the chain of command. All right? And so what he says on this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he's wrapping up his argument, and he's talking about, wouldn't you rather be wronged, verse 7, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 6, and instead of yourselves, verse 8, cheat and do wrong, do you do, and you do this to your brothers, Verse 9, this is his argument. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Listen, 
Admittedly, this is a list, number one, of horrible sin, isn't it? It is a list of horrible sin. And in the list is homosexual behavior. When I referenced McLaren's comments, he talked about the science of the day and the psychology and psychiatry of the day shedding new light. And one of the things that they do to deal with this passage is they will say that the Apostle Paul had no understanding of what it meant to grow up and be oriented as a homosexual. That this is people who are heterosexual, who engage in homosexual behavior, and God condemns that. But God does not condemn people who are by design, homosexual, and who then are monogamously involved in a homosexual relationship. That, my friends, is a twisting of Scripture. It is purely redefining what words mean. I su- suggest that the Apostle Paul knew very, what, very much what homosexual behavior was. In fact, the very words themselves reveal it, and I'll show you that in just a second. The first thing I want you to see in this passage, and that we can know with authority that it is listed as a wicked sin. It is wicked people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's why it is a scary thing for Christians to say they're engaging in the behavior and that it's part of their lifestyle. Paul said with clarity and authority, this is a wicked, horrible sin, and it does, you do not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I want to make clear. We shouldn't pick this out, this sin, out of the list and handle it really any different, should we? All of the sins there qualify as horrible and wicked. We don't want to be known as the church that takes a ball bat to certain sins and sinners. So we want to react appropriately against all sin. One of the things that comes up is, so then why is it that we react so emotionally against homosexuality? One of the key passages is Romans chapter 1. You don't have to turn there, but in Romans chapter 1, he calls, it's the only passage, by the way, that deals with lesbianism in the Bible, and it is talking about the downgrade of culture and society to the degree that even the women will get to a place where they give up the proper use of their bodies and turn towards one another. Are we not seeing an upswing of lesbianism in our culture? Would anybody be prepared that our American culture and European Western culture is not in a demise downhill slide that cannot exist or last? Our money system won't even work much longer. We will not be able to enforce the laws of our cities. We are so close to just going crazy. And Romans 1 is true. Even at this point in our demise... The women have turned away, but he uses the word there twice at least. He says it is unnatural. They leave the natural use. And this is one of the things, and this is not difficult to understand, and this is not a put-down to homosexual behavior or people in in a sense of demeaning them. It is reality. Reality is that it is not natural or normal for two men to come together in an act or two women to come together in a physical act. And God did not even design our bodies to fit together like that. And that it is normal and natural and God designed for a man and a woman to come together like that. That's part of why it is a sin that is somewhat more repulsive than other sins. It is in the category of unnatural sin. It is a horrible sin. Back to 1 Corinthians 6, looking down on the page. It is a definable sin. We can define exactly what Paul's talking about here. Look where he says in the NIV, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders. 
Let me just tell you quickly that those two words both deal with homosexual behavior. They're both male words. If you think the Apostle Paul didn't understand what homosexuality was or is, and, and if you think he didn't observe it, he chose two different words that are tr- translated into English. The first one is a male prostitute. The idea there is that that is a passive word. It is a receptor. It is a, it is a more soft, feminine word. It is the idea of men and boys who allow themselves to be misused. They're the passive, submissive one in the role or in the act. All right? It doesn't necessarily mean that they are getting money for it. It's translated into English. On homosexual offenders is another Greek word. It's also used in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. And it is the active, aggressive participant. If you've observed homosexual couples, have you ever noticed that there is one that takes on a more feminine role and one that takes on a more leadership masculine role? You can document that. I'm not talking nonsense. I'm not talking criticism. The Apostle Paul is talking right here. You see this in lesbian couples as well. Listen, you can know that the Bible is speaking specifically to the point. We're not confused. We're not misunderstanding what words mean. We're not misunderstanding a lifestyle. And listen, you do not have to keep feeling like you have to defend the Bible over and over. Here it is. I believe the Bible. Here it is. That's my approach on creationism. I can't explain creation. God spoke it into existence. I can't explain the flood, a universal flood, Noah and the ark and the animals. God's word said it and I believe it and I have seen that everything, and this again is true. Do you remember our helicopter, our microscope and our magnifying glass and our telescope when we started the Genesis series? And one of the things we always wanted to do is test the Bible with our natural observation. Not to doubt the Bible, but don't you find that when you look at the world around you that the Bible always rings true? There it is again. There it is again. The world just rings true, doesn't it? So question number one, does the Bible speak with clarity? Indeed it does. And a great movement of revision has had to go on to turn it into the possibility of having a Christian gay community. Secondly, can the church know with authority? Yes, we can. Paul spoke directly to it in 1 Corinthians 6. It is a horrible sin. It is a definable sin. Notice that it is a reversible sin. Did you get that out of that passage? It is a reversible sin. Verse 11, and that is what some of you were, praise God. They did not get to stay in their lifestyle. When they got saved, they were called out of their lifestyle. It is reversible. And notice that it is forgivable, 11b. But you were washed and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. It is forgivable like any other sin. It is forgivable. My friend, it is the gospel that you need. It is the gospel that we hold out to. I need to address one other point for this to be helpful, and and it will not be in great detail, but our third question is, what about my reality then? Because this is what a lot of people have been wondering. Okay, what do I do? What do I do with my, my brother, my sister, my daughter, my father, who's now in, in open gay? What do I do with this? Well, first of all, let me make clear that the Christian church, God's people, 
handle themselves differently than we do the world. Will you cast your eyes over on 1 Corinthians 5, where your Bible should still be open, and notice in verse 9 that the Apostle Paul says, I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. 1 Corinthians 5, 9, I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy, and the swindlers, or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. But I am now writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral, or greedy, or an idolater, and other sins. Let me try to wrap it up like this. Number one, if you are dealing with a blatant, open, rebellious homosexual and they are non-believer, preach Christ to them. Preach Christ to them. You can't leave the world. You're going to have all these kind of people around you. You don't have to avoid them. They're everywhere. You know, different kinds of sinners, idolaters, backbiters, all kinds of sinful, open, rebellious If they're of the world, you do not have to avoid them. If it is a committed Christian, openly rebellious and antagonistic, our command is to discipline in love and to avoid them. Okay? You are not to eat supper with them. You are are to avoid them. And so if you have an arrogant, haughty child, parent, sibling, arrogant, hard-hearted, and they're blatantly practicing and exercising their sin and openness... And they say, I am a Christian. And you say, because you're a Christian and you are hard-hearted about this, we will not associate. That is very difficult to do when it is a close family member. Okay? I'm talking about open rebellion. Secondly, though, if it is a broken, secret, regrettable, sinful person. Okay? This is not a person that is like flaunting themselves. And homosexuals have gotten to where they do that a lot to gain territory. But this is a person who is not flaunting their open homosexuality. They are saying, I wish I could change. I just don't know what to do. And they might even be involved actively in a homosexual relationship or a lesbian relationship. Then Galatians 6.1 applies and you are to love them back to the truth. You are to love them back to the truth. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's a difference in their attitude. So if they're, even if they're a professing Christian, but nobody basically knows that they're openly gay. And when they talk to you, you know, it's like they're, they're not trying to flaunt it. They're not trying. They would love to change. You love them out of it. If it's a non-Christian, we show Christ to them. If it is a Christian and they are in rebellion and we confront them and they're in rebellion, you have to avoid them, 1 Corinthians 5. If they are in regrettable sin and they're fighting and they're struggling, you need to stay with them and love them through it and pray, pray, pray. And there are other ways of getting help as well. Just like a man who would say, I have to be with women, it's no more excusable than a man that says, I have to be with men or a woman that has to be with women. Sin is sin here. And these moral sins have to be dealt with. I trust that that helps a little bit. Does the Bible speak with clarity? Indeed it does. Do not succumb to revisionism. Can we know with authority? Yes, we can. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy verse 10. Paul uses the actual words. What do we do about my reality? If it's a rebellious Christian, you avoid them. If it is a struggling Christian, you love them. If it is a non-Christian, you love them through Christ. Deal with them with all wisdom. But you don't have to avoid a non-Christian. Let's bow in prayer. Will you stand with me, please?
Well, Father, we um, are very concerned that we understand our Bibles and that we live out the truth. Father, would you just give us a heart for lost people? Would you give us a, a, a strength, a grip on, on the gospel and how it changes even the most broken of lives and that it is the great hope of the world? And so, Lord, if we're dealing with rebellious, hard-hearted Christians, give us a strength to have a tough love. If we're dealing with, with people who are broken and confused and struggling, Lord, show us the Galatians 6.1, how to love them and restore them gently, taking heed of our own sinfulness, lest in our pride and arrogance we fall into sin and live in duplicity. Father, for the lost world around us, may we see Christ convert and change lives. Use your word and strengthen us in our walk, I pray in Jesus' name.